Everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay and Sam Clay. Sam, you're a pretty astute person. Am I? But do you like how I begin these conversations with yeah, such? It's a nice open. It's observ- nice observations. Usually they're complimentary. <clears throat> Thank you. Astute. <laughs> do you even do you even know what I might be referencing when it comes to being astute? Because you can be astute about a lot of things. I am not sure what you're referencing by that. Yeah. I, I think you pay attention to people. I think you read people really, really well. And in that sense, you're pretty astute when it comes to reading people. So would you agree with me? I think so. I try my best to just mm-hmm. take in personalities and try to read people. Yeah, well, it seems like it would be very adaptive, right? Yeah. Especially if it's someone you don't know, then it's your first encounter with them, and Knowing where they are or trying to size them up in that sort of way, measure them up in that sort of way so you get some sense for their personality, that would be important. But even if it's somebody that you know, that you have a pretty regular relationship with, a a routine relationship with, uh, probably you should should try to read them a bit too. Lest lest you get caught off guard. And out of nowhere they lower the... Boom or whatever. I guess, yeah. I think the more you hang out with someone, the more you pick up on some of those like body language and stuff that they give off that shows their mood. Yeah, and I think body language is really a great way to describe it. Although probably more than just body language, there's probably some verbal cues and uh, I don't know. Some people would say maybe an aura. You know, people could put off energy and you know, negative and maybe more positive sorts of terms. But I think being astute is probably, again, very adaptive uh, to facilitation of relationships, uh, maintenance of relationships. So, Psychology Today, February of 2022. Relationships. (laughs) Nerves. Are you more attractive when you're nervous? Research reveals how anxiety affects interpersonal attraction. If you've ever become nervous during a conversation with someone you like, you're not alone. In fact, you might actually have come across as being more attractive when doing so. Why? Research suggests that you're less likely to be perceived as arrogant if you're feeling butterflies. Two, your body language may communicate compliments you wish you could give out loud. It seems that physical expressions of anxiety have been written into our nonverbal communications, bold and underlined. First impression butterflies. Many people suffer from first impression jitters when interacting with an attractive person. They may feel butterflies in their stomach and flushing in their face, among other semi-automatic responses. Yet, as luck would have it, such inadvertent expressions of interest can make the nervous appear more interesting and attractive. Researchers have found that whether people are aware of doing so or not, they recognize nervous reactions displayed in response to interpersonal attraction, and they use them to assess whether the other person is attracted to them. Attraction and anxiety. Psychologists have long known that anxiety and attractions are linked more than just alphabetically. In the 1970s, researchers Donald G. Dutton and Arthur P. Aaron found that situations of high anxiety heightened sexual attraction. 
They tested the level of arousal expressed by men who were contacted by an attractive female interviewer while crossing one of two different bridges. The first, a swaying suspension bridge. Don't you just find it amazing? The actual, uh, I guess the storyline. Some interesting study here. The studies, yeah. Quite the links they went to to get this credible yes. information. Uh, yeah, who, who would have ever thought this up, right? The first, a swaying suspension bridge with low guardrails and a 230-foot drop to the river. The other, a stable wooden bridge only 10 feet above the water. The men on the scary bridge exhibited more sexual attraction to the female interviewers measured by the sexual content of stories they were asked to write and their propensity to attempt contact with the interviewer post-experiment. When the interviewer was a man instead of an attractive female, there was no significant difference between the two bridges in terms of the subject's response. By comparing the two situations, Dutton and Aaron firmly established a link between heightened anxiety and sexual attraction. The allure of audible anxiety. As many of us know, as much as we try to hold it together when we are nervous, our voices tend to give us away. It may make us self-conscious, but this is not necessarily a bad thing. Attraction or romantic interest is also discernible through vocal tones. Women reportedly raise their vocal pitch when anxious, contrary to the stereotype of the sultry seductress. Men rate higher-pitched female voices as sounding more attractive. It's not just the switched pitch that holds charm, either. Someone who is nervous may sound flustered, fumbling over words, or not making sense completely. The garble communication may, in fact, be romantically endearing. It humanizes the speaker. There is nothing attractive about coming across as overly practiced. I bet that they would give us that <laughs> with the podcast. Not saying that we are necessarily adept and incompetent. Uh, what do you say, bumbling or whatever the word was? Yeah, bumbling around something. Yeah, like that. fumbling. Fumbling. Words are not making sense completely. But there's a little bit of nervous energy in our conversation. In addition, or perhaps because of the appealing vocal tone and content, anxious individuals appear nicer, more engaging, more interesting, and more conversational. All of which can increase their desirability to the other person. Accordingly, someone who displays these traits through nervous reactions during an initial interaction could be signaling that he or she possesses other desirable personality traits, such as being responsive, sensitive, and caring, all of which are conducive to long-term relationships and parenting potential. Researchers also note that nervous sweating, no one's preferred mode of communication, releases pheromones, a chemical signal of attraction, during an encounter with a possible mate. Recognizing reciprocity, nerves may cause people to look, sound, and smell more appealing, but nervousness does have some downsides. It seems that nonverbal nervous communications runs in one direction only. The more nervous people are in the company of someone they find highly attractive, the less they are able to discern whether or not the other person is interested in them, researchers find. They attribute the effect to the cognitive interference that anxiety and attraction create. Of course, looks still matter. Nonverbal expressiveness can compensate in the department only to a point. Researchers find that nervousness is more evident when there is a perception of mutual attraction. When only one person is nervous, it might indicate a mismatch 
is perceived and perceived mate value, an important factor for those who prefer finding a mate who is similar in terms of social desirability. The good news for anyone who has fumbled over a word or thought in the presence of a crush is that nervousness does not decrease attractiveness. If you're too flustered to fathom how someone else feels, your nerves, red face, and even your sweating might be sending the right signals after all. And this article was written by Wendy L. Patrick, JD, PhD. So, getting back to... That was a long article. It was, but it was good. The title of the article, Relationships, Are You More Attractive When You're Nervous? Now, of course, I don't know that we necessarily have to frame all of this within the context of sexual attraction. I think a lot can be just said for sociability in general. But what do you think about that? Being the astute person that you are... I am astute. And, and being quite able to read people's emotional reactions or emotions during interactions. Um, I think that what they were saying at the beginning of the article when they were talking about uh, arrogance, you don't come off as arrogant as you would be if you're nervous. I think that you, your brain doesn't really have time to just process uh, on the greatest thing ever because you're nervous and you're not as confident when you're nervous. And while you're, when you feel nervous, you're unable to think, I'm just that great. You're like sweating or just, say what they say, bubbling, I think. <laughs> Bumbling with the swing bridge, yes. Yeah. I think I think it kind of comes off that way. Well, yes. I, there is, um, I want to say this correctly, there is a, a, a way of thought in psychology when it comes to the way that we perceive situations, circumstances, and the necessity even to define a situation and circumstance because our reaction and response is predicated on how we label it. Which just basically means I have a feeling <laughs> and I've got to figure out what that feeling's got to do with the situation and circumstance or how the situation and circumstance may have brought that feeling about. And for the most part, when it comes to feelings, there really are some just very basic sort of emotional reactions. And in some ways, you could bring it down to this. There's fight or flight, and or there's a sense of contentment and or, again, love. Uh, and with that, there's probably some in-betweens. But for the most part, on an initial reaction, or when you're with somebody who's in a little bit of a fight or flight mode, threat, there's a bit of threat that's implicit in it, novel situation, new situation, new person, doing something different, all of which then has an energy attached to it, you're going to have to label it to figure out what you're going to do with it. And there is a fine line between fear, flight, fight to protect yourself, and maybe attraction in a sense, because excitement is not always bad. Would you agree with me on that point? I would agree with you on that point. I think exciting, being excited is a good thing. Oh, people need that, I think. There's a certain dimension to adapting life itself that the only way that we really know when we should act or what creates motive for our actions uh, is when, in some sense, there's a threat. But anytime that primary drives need to be met, sleeping, eating, 
I think that's why this article goes to relationships and particularly the sexual orientation because that's a primary drive. But when you otherwise have those primary drives as with operational and there is some sort of need to engage in them and that's why the primary drives are all tied to survival, procreation included, then there's going to be a bit of a registry of I need to do something and generally speaking it comes from threat. If I don't do this something bad's going to happen. But now I'm not sure how good things could turn out if everything that you perceived in that context of threat or registered in that context of a, a biologically, physiologically, the biochemistry, primary drives, again, if it's all threatening, I'm not sure how much excitement could turn to fun, <laughs> generally speaking. Yeah, if I'm worried. You might want to kill it all or run away from it all, which would not be very adaptive. So you have to somehow label it or put a context on it a narrative to it so that you can engage in it properly. Yeah, I think you're right. I think if, like, what you're saying, if I'm nervous, I'm probably not going to have a lot of fun. I'm not going to be a whole lot. I'm not going to be really excited. But if I label it as, okay, this could be good, I'm not really worried. I'm probably going to have more fun. But if I worry about it and say, this is not good, I can't be excited, as you were saying. Well, and if you never get the primary drive met because you're so either scared of it or you're so uh, in some defensive mode, and I think that's what the article was also trying to speak to, too much anxiety, too much of that fight-or-flight thing, the biochemistry, that, that reaction, that dynamic that has it that neurotransmitter biochemical basis. It kicks in when we feel threatened or when primary drives need to be in some manner or way met. You know, we're not going to starve to death, but somewhere along the way, you have to register, I'm hungry, because if you don't eat, you could starve to death, right? Correct. Yes, unlikely, but... You could. Theoretically, hypothetically, yeah. you could. But when it comes to relationships, you have to be careful not to move it so far into that direction or in that direction of it being so threatening that they don't occur. Because then you don't have any of the opportunity that that represents when you kind of finally see a situation that seems to have the possibility, the potential to meet the need when it presents itself. Or as you're searching for the situations, you might get so discouraged that you just quit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think if you can just, if you end up deeming it as this is not good, you're just going to want to give up. But if you can deem it as better, as it'll be okay, I can do something with the situation. You don't just shut down and you kind of can work past that. So a little bit of nervousness kind of represents, again, some dimension of primary drive, and once more the article tried to capture that, suggesting some ways that it's just biologically part of who we are genetically programmed into us. There's an adaptive or advantageous sort of dimension to it, but at the same time, if you freak out and you overdo it, you're not going to get anything accomplished. Yeah, a little bit of nervousness is okay, it's good, but if you just freak out completely, it's not going to end too well. Well, and I'll go back to <coughs> situations. Sometimes you can talk to people, and sometimes they're so nervous. They just can't even talk to them. They're so anxious. They may be staying there with you, but you can't tell if they're going to yell at you. You know, that they're giving you that look that you're trying to yourself label. Is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? Am I about to get pounced on uh, in some sort of way, the lowered the boom on, as I was mentioning earlier? Or is this just all part of trying to work through 
recognizing there needs to be, again, some strong motive to get this thing done because of, again, just maybe the physical dimensions of the world, the material world. I mean, there's always going to be obstacles, barriers. There's always going to be something that gets in the way. But, again, for the most part, we do survive and we do adapt and, and that makes us stronger and there's growth in it psychologically as well as physically. But when you're with somebody and you can't read them really well, it's an uncomfortable situation. Yeah, it kind of creates some of that like nervous just tension because you don't know them very well, you can't read them very well. You're not sure how they're feeling, you're not sure if they're thinking, oh my gosh, what is this guy doing? He looks stupid or just you're really unsure of how they're acting, if they're happy, if they're sad, if they're mad, they're angry, they're upset. You don't really know. So if that happens, it's a little hard to read and try to say anything back or just have a conversation. But how desperate they may yeah. also be. Yeah. You know, it's it's sort of like the more desperate you are, the hungrier you are, the, again, getting to that, those primary drives. You, you may not be able to socially even package it. That's part of labeling, too, I think, is that we have to create a social narrative in which to make these exchanges without just going out and getting them. I mean, right? You could just dominate somebody. You could just steal what you wanted. You could just take away from somebody what you wanted. Uh, you could just do whatever you wanted. But that's not really good in the long run for society or social relationships. You're not safe then. Everybody's on the defensive. Then it all kind of resorts to, you know, uh, survival of the fittest sort of mentality. Fight or flight. Yeah. And you're just kind of getting that mode of just defending yourself as if I can't really have a conversation or I don't really feel comfortable doing this. I'm just going to not say anything. I'm just going to defend myself and just kind of be on guard of sorts. So when you ask the girl out and you appear too desperate... <laughs> Or she appears too nervous and it's starting to kind of reach that crescendo where it's starting to amplify itself to the point where it's not you're really not sure how this is going to turn out. Yeah. What should you do? Well, you can, you get kind of, it almost seems like it's a little bit too much of the nervousness. It's not really just a little bit. It seems like there's a lot more of it. Um, I don't really know. I guess you can just kind of back off or something, or you, I don't really know. Well, I think you're right. You, you can could. back off, but I don't know that necessarily means exiting the circumstance. No. Or removing yourself entirely. Yeah. But it does probably mean you need to at least be able to manage those emotional reactions. Yeah. If you're starting to get too much into fight or flight, that it's starting to get to that point of crescendo. Maybe you do need to step back and say, let's just label this yeah. a little bit. Or let's see if we can run the catalog of all of my previous experiences. See if I can see if I can out or whatever. See if I can figure this as a yes. as a this can be done, this is possible. And think you about could my probably diffuse the situation a bit. Yeah, think about my past experiences and not dial down the nervousness a little bit based on previous experiences. So what is the best way to diffuse the situation a bit or to take the intensity of that down enough that it doesn't cross that line and go berserk? I guess you could just do what we were saying. You can just kind of dial it back and just kind of think about your past thoughts, maybe. I mean, something Well, you like can that. make a joke. Yeah. Right? Make different conversations. Yes. Or as with this whole idea of sometimes fumbling around. You could go walk on a swing you're, suspension bridge. You're not bridge. too aggressive. You're, you're not too pushy. You don't just try to dominate. You, you kind of step back. 
But all of that, though it seems to represent a lot of stress and tension, all of that is part of the negotiation. All of that is trying to figure out how to balance all of that out in the most appropriate of manners or ways. And oftentimes, I think, lack of experience, not being able to step back, not being able to employ or use the mind's ability to, again, frame it, to label it, the feelings, to reference it, to try to create a, a socially acceptable narrative. All of that means that not only will the situation go berserk, but you might go berserk in the situation. Yeah, if you get to that level, it's not going to turn out well. You're going to get stuck in just this, oh my gosh, what's going on? It's moving way too fast for you and just become this socially acceptable level, as you were saying. So are you astute enough then that not only do you read it well on the front end, but should it start to kind of get to that level, do you pace yourself well? Can you like step back as part of that pacing or reframing? And uh, are you good at kind of neutralizing or taking that down a few notches? Not eliminating, but taking it down a few notches? I'd like to think I am. I'd like to think if I sense something's a little bit uncomfortable or there's too much, or we get to that one point where it's too much and it's not that little bit, it's just over the top, I'd like to think I'd be able to dial it back or just kind of take a step back just from my astute nature, as you said I am, so I appreciate that. Mm. Just kind of dial it back just a bit. Well, it's better than running away. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or it's better than triggering you in some sort of manner to put you in an aggressive mode. Uh, dogs are people. They act like it. They do, and that's my point. That's why I bring them up as a reference or an example. Dogs are people, but they are very similar to us and why we have such uh, potential for good rapport, not all of us, but a good bit of us with dogs is because they react in somewhat the same sort of social ways that we do. Maybe with far less thought. Who knows? I mean, nobody really knows what a dog thinks. But, but certainly not with the whole human conceptualization, uh, the whole standard that we seem to go by when it comes to our distinctly our human perspective on things. But dogs are kind of like that. Do you ever come up to a dog that doesn't know you or that you don't know, and it looks kind of friendly on the front end of it? Yeah. There's even a little bit of a tail wag. Yeah. The dog's kind of showing some demure behaviors. You know, the eyes, they're kind of, they're not in an aggressive posture. The ears are all the nonverbal. Yeah. But when you put your hand out to pet the dog, <laughs> all of a sudden you realize this dog may not be as comfortable as I think that he or she is. How do you know? Because the hair starts to bristle on the back of their neck. They start to show their teeth a bit. You might hear a growl or a bark. And that is when you decide to dial it back. Yes. Or you turn and run and, away. Yeah, and you walk. Or you don't walk. You run. You turn away and run. I think dogs are dogs are a lot like people, but I think they show it more than people. I think they really express their personality because they may not think the same as much as we do, and they don't. They always show their feelings. They don't. Some people usually don't show their feelings much as dogs usually, but dogs really just kind of show their feelings without much hesitation. And and I agree with you on all those points: personality, uh, the way dogs communicate, their level of sophistication. I think they call it anthropomorphizing, where you take human attributes and you project it onto animals. And animals aren't humans. But humans are animals. 
And, and so what I'm trying to say is I agree with everything you're saying. That's why we have this higher level of thought. That's why we can dial it back a bit or we can pause it a moment. We can reframe it. We have to label it. We have to apply some sort of intention thought toward it, create a narrative, uh, even uh, adapt or develop socially appropriate, uh, in adapting we develop socially appropriate sort of context to meet people, to handshakes used to be, I don't know if people shake hands anymore these days, but used to handshake, that was part of it. But I think what that really speaks to when it comes to animal to animal communications that there's not only the dog as an animal without all this higher level of maybe human conceptualization or this distinctly human sort of conceptualization, but humans being animals, we're going to be reactive. And I think this article is really speaking to more of the biophysiological or the genetic or the more physiologically based nature of humans. And with that then, it probably is kind of something that sometimes we scratch our head and said, I can't really, didn't really think of it that way. I can't really say that I've imagined it that way because nobody's really pointed that out. But when we apply thought, conscious thought, or even if it's thought that's just conscious to us, we've not communicated that. Maybe there's a subconscious level, so I'm trying to track down. Maybe it's still inside of us. We're talking to ourselves, but it's not even become that distinctive inside of ourselves. But we're certainly not communicating with other people, uh, sharing those thoughts with other people in the way that we can with language. The notion of it is, though, that we just are still reactive beings, and we have to sort of figure out how to do that inside of ourselves, even as we're doing that in relationship to other people. But one of the more obvious places that all of this sort of gets, goes a little berserk, gets a little bit out of lines, certainly is in dating relationships. Now, are you very nervous asking girls out? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a genuine time for, to be nervous or a fair time to be nervous. Yes. So do you work through that well? I try to, yeah. Try to try to take the cues, and then if I need to dial it back, I can. Yes, and with that, then probably can find that balance. Yeah, find the balance of fight or flight. And I think it's, again, not only dating, but it's probably any social situation that we engage in. We see a lot of folks, I do, that really don't have that ability down or their anxiety or their emotions are so powerful as to overriding even that self-analysis, which is kind of what we've done on the, the podcast today, is sort of uh, work through some sort of introspective dimension to it or self-analysis. But when people come talk to me, that's really what I do, is I try to reflect back to them what I'm seeing, and it gives them some additional dimension of feedback. And maybe on the next podcast, we're going to talk about exposure therapy, where people are put in situations where they're having anxiety. Maybe they can't really then, because it's so powerful, the biochemistry, they're not really able to think very clearly, see it very clearly. And having someone such as myself to coach them along or to help them interpret it, to help them step back is all part of the intervention. It's all part of the psychotherapeutic approach or the intervention. Uh, cognitive therapies are all directed toward that. Uh, certainly dialectical behavior therapies directed toward that. Probably behavior therapy even to some extent has some dimension of that. So Sam, relationships. Are you more attractive when you're nervous? Particularly the, the flop sweat? 
Yeah, that in particular, yeah. But I think this is, it could, yeah. I think this is true. Could be true. And isn't it a nice thought to think all of our listeners out there, as you and I are, are kind of, I hope we're not bumbling. No, not bumbling around. Bumbling around. But it's kind of hopeful that they take a lot of our bantering going back and forth in the way that we do yeah. as part of just that engagement. Yeah. Because it's a good example of it. Yeah, we don't script it. <laughs> no, just, no. Talk about it. But in that same sort of a way, though, even listening to us go back and forth kind of then offers them a chance to maybe see it in a little bit of a different light, which is exactly why we do the podcast Word with Dr. Michael David Clay and Sam Clay. Because what we do is we want to offer them a different perspective. And Psychology Today and the research that we cover uh, is very helpful to that end. So, I would want to encourage then our listeners to join us again, where we're going to probably be not only very astute. (laughs) Going to banter. (laughs) We're going to banter back and forth a bit. And uh, maybe talk about that exposure therapy next podcast, which is kind of how you coach somebody through anxiety. So if that's of any interest to any of our listeners, we want to invite them back for our next edition of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay and Sam Clay.